One of the great dangers is being deceived when it comes to the truths of God. And in fact, this is one of the greatest dangers, being deceived when it comes to the truths of God. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul said, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The fall and the sin occurred when Eve was deceived, deceived by the devil. And the church is warned that we, we would not also be deceived. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says of our hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, with, with a fallen heart, we have a deceitful heart. Romans chapter 7 verse 11 says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. 2 John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. There is no shortage of deceivers, of false teachers out there who are operating under the influence of the devil carrying out his will and seeking to deceive men, women, boys, and girls. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10 through 10 say, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who pra practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So the Bible warns us against being deceived by the devil. It warns us against being deceived by other people. And it warns us against being deceived by our own self. Our text warns of the last. In 1 Corinthians 3.18, we read, Let no one deceive himself. In what way? Let no one deceive himself in, in what way? Why, why does Paul give this warning, let no one deceive himself? Well, let's look at the text to find out. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18-23. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. What Paul says in these verses that I have just read is what he has been driving at since chapter 1, verse 18. And we have two commands here in this text, two commands given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might truly live for Christ in His church. Paul's writing because there were problems in the Corinthian church. There were many problems. And he is writing to correct the problems in the church, and he's been seeking to address the root of the problem. Ever since chapter 1, verse 18. And now, in light of all that he has said since that, that verse, he now gives us two closely connected commands so that we might truly live for Christ in his church in a faithful way. And the, the first command is renounce the wisdom of this world for it is folly with God. Renounce the wisdom of this world, for it is folly with God. 
Now, Paul has said much about wisdom and folly. Let me summarize it in seven points. He has taught us that the gospel of Christ is the wisdom of God. He has taught us, secondly, that even though the gospel is the wisdom of God, the word of the cross is seen as folly by those who are perishing. Those who are perishing do not recognize the word of the cross for what it is, the true wisdom of God. They write it off as folly. Thirdly, this does not mean that we are to dress up the word of the cross with the wisdom of this world. Paul did not preach with words of human wisdom. You you, you might say, well, since the world sees the gospel as foolishness, then so that they will accept it, let's dress it up with the world's wisdom. But Paul insists that that cannot be done. Paul did not preach with words of human wisdom. Fourthly, God has shown the wisdom of the world to be foolish and has purposed to prevent it from succeeding. Fifthly, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through their wisdom. Sixth, In fact, God has delighted in choosing people who are foolish in the eyes of the world. And seventh, God's purpose in all of this is that your faith might not rest in man's wisdom, but in God's power, and that you would boast only in the Lord. Consequently, as chapter 3 instructs, we are to be careful to use the proper materials in edifying the church. To use the proper materials in church ministry. The proper materials are God's Word, which centers on Christ and Him crucified, and which Paul likens to gold, silver, and precious stones. That is the the material that we are to use in edifying the church. We are not to use the wisdom of this world which Paul has likened to wood, hay, and straw. In other words, we are to use God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom in edifying the church. We are to use God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom in the work of the Christian ministry. Now, let's see where Paul goes with all of this in our text. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, if if a believer is steeped in the world's wisdom and thinks that the world's wisdom makes him wise, he is deceiving himself. The world's wisdom gets you nowhere with God and, and does no good in building the church. The the world's wisdom does you no good in carrying out the great commission that Jesus Christ has given to us. The world's wisdom does you no good in the things that matter the most. Spiritual matters. The world's wisdom does you no good in spiritual matters. In fact, the wisdom of the world is counterproductive in spiritual matters. Paul says here in verse 18, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. He's saying that to embrace God's wisdom, you must first let go of this world's wisdom. And when you do so, you become a fool in the eyes of the world. God's wisdom and the the world's wisdom cannot be mixed They cannot be integrated. You you cannot add God's wisdom to the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom must be renounced if you are to truly become wise. This is because God's wisdom turns the world's values upside down. Think about what Jesus said about this in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 35. It says that when Jesus was in the house... He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Asking his disciples what they were discussing. 
But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Just the opposite of the way that the world thinks. Just the opposite of the way that we thought before we were saved. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then in the next chapter of Mark, chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus called the disciples to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The unbelieving Jews were expecting a Messiah that was going to seize the throne and was going to give military victory over the nation of Israel's enemies. But Jesus comes as the true promised Messiah. And he says that he came not to be served like a king would be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many at the cross. The cross is at the heart of the wisdom of God. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, turns the values of the world upside down. The world is not looking for a crucified Messiah, a crucified deliverer, a crucified Savior. And Jesus said that His disciples were not to be like the Gentiles who are, are seeking to, uh, to rise up in authority over other people and to dominate over others. But rather, they are to be like their Savior. They are to be like their Master. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, reflecting what Christ has done for us in coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel of Christ, the wisdom of God, turns the world's values completely upside down. So in Matthew 18, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus thought that he would enter the kingdom because of his possession of the law and his knowledge of the law. Jesus told him, unless one is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, Jesus says here, unless you become like a child. Children were, were, not, were viewed as some of the lowest people in society. Unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way up is the way down. The way into the kingdom is to humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. The way into the kingdom is not by your own works. It's not by your righteousness. It's through a childlike faith in our Savior. A childlike faith in our Redeemer. In chapter 23 of, of Matthew, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Luke 22, when Jesus was with his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You would think that they would have learned by now. 
And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And he has showed that by taking the basin and the towel and washing the dirty, stinky feet of his disciples. He took the lowest position, the position of the lowest servant in the household, and washed the feet of his disciples. So that is spiritual leadership. Serving those whom you lead. To be great, you must humble yourself. To be great, you must become a servant of all, reflecting Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Now, the Corinthian church was having various problems because they were still holding on to the world's wisdom. Just as will happen to any church that embraces the world's wisdom, embraces the world's values, embraces the world's standards, embraces the world's methods. If a church continues to hold on to man's wisdom, there will be deep problems in that church. Because you cannot mix the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom. God's wisdom is His Word, centered on Christ and Him crucified. The two don't mix. Let me give you an example of holding on to the world's wisdom. One of the the things that the world values is self-esteem. And there are preachers today who draw large crowds by seeking to boost their listeners' self-esteem. Esteem. They mix the Word of God together with a message of self-esteem. Understand that these are antithetical. God's Word and a message of self-esteem. The Word of the Cross says, Without Christ, we are sinners under God's condemnation and in need of salvation. The Word of the Cross says we are dead in transgressions and sins, unable to please God, unable to come to Christ. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 30 and 31, say to the believer that it is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. Not because of what we have done, it is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, God has designed, I'm sorry, God has designed salvation in such a way that those who receive salvation can only, if they're being sane, can only boast in the Lord and not in themselves. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So the gospel says there's nothing that we can contribute to a right standing with God. There's nothing we can contribute to our own salvation. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it says in the Christian life, you cannot live the Christian life. You cannot live in a way that pleases God in your own strength. Only as you abide in the vine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God is at work in you, that you would work and will according to God's pleasure. It leaves no room for boasting in self. Salvation and sanctification are of God. The Bible teaches us not to have self-esteem, but God-esteem. We're not to be esteeming ourselves, we're to be esteeming our great God. 
Our, our problem is that we think too highly of ourselves and too little of God. The gospel of Christ and Him crucified teaches not self-esteem, but humility. The gospel of Christ teaches us to humble ourselves before Christ. And then to live a life of humility. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should go around thinking that we are ugly and having zero confidence. The Bible teaches us to be confident in the Lord. We have great confidence, but that, great, that confidence is not founded in anything in ourselves. That confidence is found entirely in our Lord and Savior, in our great God. And so, to mix together a message of self-esteem with the message of the Bible is to mix together the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. And our passage calls us to do just the opposite. Look at our text again. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. We must renounce the world's wisdom in order to embrace the wisdom of God. In renouncing the world's wisdom, we will be seen as foolish by the world. That's the only way to truly become wise is to first renounce the world's wisdom. Then we can embrace all that the Word of God says. Paul says in verse 19, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. God sees the world's wisdom as folly. And it is His evaluation that determines reality, not our evaluation. Now, Paul proceeds to back what he has just said with two passages of Scripture. He quotes from Job, and then he quotes from Psalms, to show that the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Look again at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. Here Paul quotes from Job chapter 5, verse 13, which is part of Eliphaz's first speech. Now, some of what Eliphaz said to Job was plain wrong. But other things that Eliphaz said were right, including this statement that Paul quotes. In this statement, Eliphaz likens God to a hunter who uses his praise cunning as the means of capture. A hunter who outwits his prey. Now, in context, Eliphaz's point is that God keeps the wise from succeeding. Eliphaz has been speaking about the greatness of God. And two verses earlier, Eliphaz said that God sets on high those who are lowly. And it is in contrast to this that Eliphaz states that God catches the wise in their own craftiness. In our text, Paul shows that the wisdom of this world is folly with God by quoting this passage and also quoting Psalm 94, verse 11. Notice that in verse 20 of our text. And again, quote, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The Bible is clear that man's wisdom is futile. That it gets him nowhere when it comes to spiritual matters. God's design has always been that we would live by faith in His Word. And never that we would find our own way to God and our own way to worship and serve Him. When man fell into sin, he gave in to the temptation to disbelieve God's Word and to look to himself or herself for wisdom. And fallen man has been doing so ever since. Disbelieving the word of God and looking to oneself for wisdom. As believers, we have been called to forsake man's wisdom 
and to live by faith in God's wisdom, as our text instructs. Which raises the question, how do we do this? How how do we live this out when he says in our text, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. How do we become a fool that we may become wise? By daily renewing our minds with God's word. By daily renewing our minds with God's word. The Corinthians loved listening to philosophers, and other professional orators. And in so doing, the Corinthians were filling their minds with the wisdom of the world. Rather than filling our minds with the wisdom of the world, we need to be filling our minds with God's Word. And we need need to do so with humility, letting our thinking, values, standards, indeed our whole mindset, be made new by the Word of God, be formed by the Word of God. Of God. That the Word of God would replace in our minds the values of the world, the standards of the world, the wisdom of the world. The Corinthian church desperately needed to take Paul's teaching to heart. Their worldly thinking led to various problems in the church, including boasting in men and forming factions in the church around these different men. So in the second half of our text, Paul instructs, Do not boast in men, for all things are yours. That's the second half of our text. Do not boast in men, for all things are yours. Look with me at verse 21. So let no one boast in men. The Corinthians had been boasting in men. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Literally, in the original language, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. The Corinthians were boasting. They were quarreling. They were boasting in one leader over another and boasting in their connection to their favored leader. And that way, boasting in themselves over others. Or they were boasting that they were superior to those in the church who boasted in human leaders. I am of Christ. Unlike you, who are of Paul or Apollos or Cephas, I am better. I am of Christ. this, This was fracturing the church. And it was the bad fruit of worldly wisdom. The bad fruit of worldly wisdom, which is why Paul has been talking so much about the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. God's wisdom and what is folly in God's sight. This was the bad fruit of worldly wisdom. This sort of behavior is what the Corinthians did before being saved. With their favorite philosophers, their favorite public orators, they, boast, they boasted in their favorites. And now, the Corinthians, having been saved, they have brought this party spirit into the church. They've just made it spiritual. By Now they're not boasting in philosophers. Now they're boasting in church leaders. But it's the same fundamental problem. It's the outgrowth of worldly wisdom. And it's fracturing the church. It's dividing the church. And if it continues, it will destroy God's temple. Paul has been speaking against boasting in men. Go back, look in chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. But God shows what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here is one of God's deep purposes, one of God's fundamental purposes that He is fulfilling, that no human being might boast in His presence. Verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah, this is God's purpose, that His redeemed people would not boast in men, but would boast in their great Lord. And in our text, you can come back to chapter 3, in our text, Paul is still confronting this boasting in men. Look in our text at verse 21. So that no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. In, in these words, Paul takes the Corinthians' boasts and he turns them upside down. They boasted, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. But the apostle says here, Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas is yours. Paul is continuing the earlier thought that these ministers are merely servants. Go back in chapter 3 to verse 5. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Meaning that they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by Christ to serve the church. And now in verse 22, Paul tells the Corinthian church that Paul, Apollos, and Cephas have been sent to serve them. All things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas. Now, if this truth were to sink into the hearts of the Corinthians, they would stop comparing their leaders and boasting in one leader over the other. The Corinthians were exalting their leaders, when in reality, their leaders were mere servants sent by Christ for the good of all the Corinthian believers. Now, Paul goes even further, elaborating on the truth that all things are yours, He says in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, which makes us ask, in what sense can it be said that the world is ours? I didn't realize that the world was ours. How is the world ours? It is ours because it is Christ's and we are in Christ. The world has been placed under Christ's authority. Turn back to, or I'm sorry, forward to Ephesians chapter 1. Just a few books to the right, Ephesians chapter 1, to see that the world has been placed under Christ's authority. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 19. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So the world has been placed under the authority of the risen, exalted Christ. And as Christians, we have been brought into union with Christ. Which is why the Apostle Paul said in the the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is true of every believer. 
If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can know that you have been called by God into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been called into union with the risen Christ. Now, being in Christ, we are heirs of the world with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, we read, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Every believer is a fellow heir with Christ. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Christ, the meek will inherit the earth. In Revelation 3, 21, we have the promise, the one who conquers. Speaking of the believer who perseveres to the end. That's what's meant by conquer there. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. This, these are the words of the risen, exalted Christ to his church. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The believer will rule and reign with Christ by virtue of our union with Christ. So, the world has been placed under Christ's authority. As Christians, we've been brought into union with Christ. And being in Christ, we are heirs of the world with Christ. Paul has these things in mind when he says in our text to believers, to the church, all things are yours. And then he gets more specific, the world. The world is yours. Now, if that was not enough, the apostle goes further in our text, elaborating upon all things are yours. In verse 22 of our text, he says, whether the world or life or death, life is yours, and death is yours. Take the first one, life. Life is yours. Spiritual life. Eternal life is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. We read in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. A believer in Jesus Christ is not hoping that after they die, they will enter into eternal life. The believer in Jesus Christ is not hoping uh, that they, they, they have or will gain eternal life. No. Every believer in Jesus Christ has received eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you may have an assurance that you have eternal life. John told us at the end of his gospel in John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We receive eternal life from God through believing in His Son. So Paul says to believers, when he says all things are yours, he includes in that life. Life is yours. Life and death. How is death ours? Death is ours because Christ has conquered death on our behalf. We are no longer enslaved to the law of sin and death. We no longer need to live in the fear of death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul foretells the return of Christ, which we await. He foretells the resurrection of believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll begin reading at verse 54. Verse 54. When the perishable, that's talking about our perishable bodies. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. That will happen when Jesus comes again. He's going to raise the bodies of believers who have died. He's going to raise those bodies imperishable. And for those believers who are alive at the return of Christ, our bodies will be transformed from being perishable to imperishable. We'll be glorified with Christ. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on, the Im on immortality, the resurrection body will be immortal, unlike our current body. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has conquered death. He has conquered death on our behalf. He was raised as the first fruits, guaranteeing the resurrection of our body. He shares with us who are in Him His victory over deaths. So we are no longer enslaved to the law of sin and death. We no longer need to fear death. But for the believer, death will mean entrance into the presence of God. As the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when Christ comes, our body will be raised. Our body will be changed. Our body will be glorified with Christ. And we will experience death never, ever again. Now Paul says in our text, all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Paulus, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. The present is ours. The future is ours. In Christ we have all things now and forevermore. What we have in Christ cannot be taken away from us in the future. Rather, all God has promised to us in Christ will come to fruition. And so the Apostle Paul says again at the end of verse 22, All are yours. Now, why would we quarrel with one another and boast in one over another and divide into different parties if we wholeheartedly believed these truths, that all of us as believers have all things? This leaves no room for boasting in men. This leaves no room for boasting in one over another. This is true of all believers. All things are yours. Paul goes on in verse 23. You can come back to our text. He says, And you are Christ's. Now, these words, you are Christ's, is worded similarly to the boast in chapter 1, verse 12, I am of Christ, but it means something very different than that boastment. In chapter 1, verse 12, this boast, I am of Christ, was a response to others who were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. The meaning was, I am better than you because I don't follow a mere man. Now, in our text... And the Apostle Paul says, you are Christ's. He is saying, all of you are of Christ. You belong to Christ, which is how the New American Standard translates it. And this is why all things are yours, because you are Christ's. Belonging to Christ makes all the difference in the world. You, you belong to Christ because He redeemed you at the cross. And the cross changes everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul will say, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, you are not your own. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became flesh, He bought you with the highest of prices. 
His precious blood. Amen. He gave up His life in death for you. He purchased you out of slavery to sin that you might belong to Him and serve Him and live for Him. So you are not your own. You are Christ's. You belong to Him. You belong to your Redeemer. This is the greatest love. Not that someone gave up their life for a friend, but that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, Christ redeemed us. When we were his enemies, God purchased us out of slavery to sin to live a new life for the glory of Christ. Paul says, you are Christ's. When you believed in Christ, He freed you from slavery to sin and He became your new master. He became your Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, which I read earlier, Paul said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, that's how we know Jesus. We know Him as our Lord, our Master. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 indicates that the believer professes, Jesus is Lord. Now understand that you belong to Christ by grace. When he says you are of Christ, it's not because of anything that you have done. It's because of the grace of God that you are Christ's. Because we as a church belong to Christ, He has given us pastors and teachers. Because we belong to Christ, we are joint heirs with Him. Because we belong to Christ, He has given us eternal life. Because we belong to Christ, He shares with us His victory over death. Because we belong to Christ, He gives us every spiritual blessing in the present and in the future. Because we belong to Christ, nothing can ever separate us from Him. And because we belong to Christ, our future is secure. The Heidelberg Catechism first asks, What is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers it with excellence. It answers it biblically. Here's the answer to the question, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our only comfort in life and death, brothers and sisters. That we belong to Christ. That we are His. Again, if the truths that Paul is teaching in these verses were to sink into the Corinthians' hearts, it would sever the root of their boasting in men. How can we boast in one man over another when all of us belong to Christ? How can we form factions around different church leaders when Christ is our Lord and Master? When Christ is the one we follow and serve? The Lordship of Christ creates unity in the church. Now observe how the Apostle ends this section in our text. In verse 23, And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What does this mean? Christ is God's. Well, it's similar to what Paul will say in chapter 11, verse 3, when he will say, The head of every man is Christ." And the head of Christ is God. It's similar to what he will say in chapter 15, verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is to the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It speaks about the Son being subjected to the Father. What Paul says here in our text is similar. Christ is God's. This does not speak of Christ being 
does not speak of Christ's essence. It doesn't speak of Christ being inferior to the Father in His being. Christ is of one essence with the Father. Christ is fully God. Christ is equal to the Father in power and glory. What this statement in our text does mean is it's speaking of Christ as having been sent by the Father as the Redeemer and Mediator carrying out the Father's will. He says in our text, All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So let no one boast in men. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how mindful are you of these truths? How deeply do these truths matter to you? So these are truths to meditate upon every morning this week. All things are ours because of our union with Christ. The world is ours. Life is ours. Death is ours. The present is ours. The future is ours. Because we are Christ's. And Christ is God's. The Son was sent by the Father for our redemption, for our salvation. And the Son has accomplished that. He has done the will of the Father. How mindful are you of these truths? How deeply do these truths matter to you? These are truths to meditate upon when you wake up in the morning to set your your mindset for the day. These are truths to meditate upon when you lay your head down on the pillow at night that your mind would not be filled with the anxieties and the worries of this world. What can you accomplish at night worrying about them? But may your mind be filled as you go down to rest with these thoughts. Rest is a blessing from God. First of all, there's the the, the spiritual rest that we have in Christ in salvation. But as those who have spiritual rest, we should have physical rest at night because we can rest our minds knowing that we possess all of this because of God's grace to us in Christ. Knowing that we belong to Christ. We should be able to rest completely at night. These are truths for which we, we ought, upon which we ought to meditate the rest of our lives. And these are truths for which we ought to give continual thanks to God. As you embrace these truths in your heart, these truths of the gospel, these truths of Christ, your attitudes will change. Your speech will change. Your outer behavior will change to the glory of God. The Corinthian church would change. That boasting in men would, would go away. Those factions would go away. As you embrace these truths in your heart, your attitude will change, your speech will change, your outer behavior will change to the glory of God. As you renounce worldly wisdom and you embrace the wisdom of God, One of the key statements in this whole passage is that statement in verse 23, you are Christ's. Let me ask you, my friend, do you belong to Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Without Christ, you have nothing. Without Christ, you do not have eternal life. Without Christ, you do not have true hope. Without Christ, everything that you currently value will one day be lost. Without Christ, you will forfeit your soul. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Without Christ, my friend, you have nothing. But if you belong to Christ, you have everything. Yet so many people refuse to come to Christ because they are unwilling, unwilling to renounce their self-righteousness. 
You, you can't come to Christ for salvation holding on to your own righteousness. If you're holding on to your righteousness, then some of your trust is in, in yourself, in your works, in what you have done. And, and Christ will not share His glory with another. In order to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, you have to renounce your self-righteousness. You have to humble yourself like a child, as we saw. Some people are unwilling to come to Christ because they're unwilling to renounce their self-righteousness. They hold on to some idea that they have some inherent goodness in themselves. And they won't let that go. There are people who refuse to come to Christ because they're unwilling to turn away from the world. They are captured by the world. They're in love with the world. Even though the Bible says the world will perish. There are people who are so in love with the world that they won't come to Christ because they're not willing to let go of the world. You can't have the world and Christ. You have to let go of the world if you're going to take hold of Christ in faith. As Christ calls us to follow Him as Lord and Savior. And you can't love the things of the world and love Christ at the same time. You can't have two masters. It's one or the other. There are people who refuse to come to Christ because they're unwilling to give up their sin. The Gospel calls us to repent of our sin and to submit our life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And there are some people who are unwilling to let go of their sin. They love their sin too much. They're not willing to forsake their sin. And there are some people who refuse to come to Christ because they're unwilling to submit to Christ's Lordship. They like being their own Lord. They like being their own Master. And they're not willing to submit their life to the Lordship of Christ. All such people are entrenched in the wisdom of this world, unwilling to become a fool that they may become wise, as Paul put it in verse 18. Let me ask you, is this where you stand today? If so, let the first words of our text ring in your heart. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. You, you have bought into the lies of the devil. You have bought into the lies of the world. We, we live in a day when the theory of evolution is taught as fact. Understand that when you believe in evolution, you believe a lie from the pit of hell. The theory of evolution is not the result of objective science. Rather, the theory of evolution presupposes atheism. It presupposes there is no creator. It presupposes there is no God. And it does its best to make sense of the origin of this world apart from a God who created it. That's what the theory of evolution is. It's not objective science. The lie of evolution tells you that your life is meaningless. The lie of evolution tells you that you can do whatever you please. But the Bible says in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's utter foolishness to deny the existence of God. Genesis 1:1, the very beginning of the Bible, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the starting point in the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. Human beings are the direct creation of God. Not the product of chance and mutation and billions of years. God created man in His image. Male and female, He created them. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We all know in our heart of hearts that God exists, 
that He's the Creator, and that's why we exist, because He has created us. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts with fearing the Lord. The Bible teaches that we have been created by God in His image. That we have been created to glorify God. And that we are therefore accountable to God for how we live. And all of this gives our life great meaning and significance. The Bible also teaches that we have rebelled against God, transgressing His law. And that Christ will return in power and great glory. And there is coming a day when Christ will judge the living and the dead. Listen to what Revelation chapter 20 prophesies about the judgment in verses 11 and following. John was given a vision of what will happen in the judgment. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name is not by God's grace in the book of life, then what you have done, how you have lived your life, as Jesus Christ examines it, will be found to not be pleasing to God. What He finds when He examines you will be unrighteousness, lawlessness, rebellion against Him. And He will rightly and justly cast you into the lake of fire for an eternity. But there's a book of life. Of those chosen by God's grace. Of those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And all those whose names are found in the book of life, they, 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 they will not suffer the second death. Because they have been justified by God's grace. They have received eternal life as a gift purchased by the blood of Jesus. God is clear in His Word that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to look at these verses again briefly. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Understand, my friends, this is why we need Christ. This is why we need the message of the cross. Because we're, we're, we're told that sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need a Savior from sin. We need the message of the cross. Salvation is not by works, it's by the finished work of Jesus, where at the cross He paid the penalty for sinners. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus suffered the wrath of God that was due us at the cross as a substitute. And He rose again on the third day in victory to give eternal life to all who repent of their sin and believe upon Him. These verses here about sinners not inheriting the kingdom of God Show us why we need Christ. Why we need the Redeemer. Why we need the message of the cross. That message that the, those who are perishing see as foolishness. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus died for sinners. That He rose from the dead to give sinners new life. And that He calls sinners to Himself for salvation. If you come to Christ in repentance of sin, believing in Him as Lord and Savior, God will save you. Look at the next verse here, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God and will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Not because of what you have done, because of grace. You were washed. The blood of Jesus washed away the guilt of all of your sin, past, present, and future. You were sanctified, set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ unto Himself to live a new life for His glory. Set apart from sin, set apart from the world, unto Christ. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Declared righteous by God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And our text says to those who have received this salvation, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Will you not forsake your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? Will you not submit your life to the Lordship of Christ, trusting in Him alone for salvation? Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have seen so much. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That through his finished work at the cross, the believer is joined to Christ. Redeemed with precious blood. We thank you for union with Christ. And that in Christ we receive every spiritual blessing. We are so rich in Christ. And at the same time we have nothing for which we can boast in ourselves. But we can only boast in you. It's all of you. Oh Lord, if there are any in this room who have been deceiving themselves, I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to the truth. Where we are holding on to the world's wisdom, Lord, enable us to forsake that and to embrace your wisdom, your word, the gospel of Christ and him crucified, and everything else that you have said in your word. And we pray, Father, that we would live lives of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to you for what you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.